than ever before. We pray it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1001. We started this passage last week, um, and the first couple of verses that we studied pointed us to the theme of the entire book of Hebrews. In fact, for the next year or so, if you go home and somebody says to you, what did he preach about? If I am preaching from Hebrews, the answer is going to be the supremacy of Christ. Every sermon is going to be about the supremacy of Christ. And so I've named this study of Hebrews Christ Above All because this book is systematically going to show us that you cannot think of anyone or anything on earth or in the heavens that is greater than Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about. The author of Hebrews, we don't know his identity, but what we can tell is that he is a pastor who dearly loves his church. But his church is prone to wandering. They, they have this sense about them that Jesus is not enough. And so again and again, he is going to show them Jesus is more than enough. I'm going to start at verse 3 for context, but our passage will actually begin with Hebrews 1, verse 4. Listen now to the reading of God's Word. He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever and ever. All scripture is breathed out by God. 
But all Scripture is also written by very real people for real people who are living in the midst of real-life situations. That's what we call the dual authorship of Scripture. The Holy Spirit wrote every word of Scripture, and yet it came through the personalities and the pens of God's people living in real situations, facing real struggles, many of which you and I can relate to even today. The situation for this church that this letter is written to, and we don't know exactly where it is. We know it's, it's Jewish converts. They were uh, probably Greek Jews who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But it's written to a people who cannot really see the value of Christ. Don't get me wrong, they've professed to be Christians, and they're happy to receive that free gift of salvation that, that Jesus offers. But, you know, following him is pretty costly. And they're starting to think it may not be worth it. And they think about all that they've left behind. They left behind the beautiful temple, and now they're worshiping in living rooms and in catacombs. They think about the priesthood, and now they have this invisible high priest. They think about how they once were among the religious elites, and now they're a marginalized sect in Judaism. And they're starting to see persecution on the horizon. And they're thinking, you know, I'm not sure Jesus is really worth it. And this brokenhearted pastor, through his tears, is saying to them, Dear flock, you can search high and low. You can scour the heavens and the earth, and you will find that nothing compares to Jesus Christ. This pastor's desire is to raise the hearts and the eyes of his flock to the rightful place where they see the glory of Jesus Christ. That they would understand that they are the church whom Jesus so loves. And Jesus has poured out His blood for them. But they don't rightly appreciate or reciprocate that love. And so at every turn, this pastor is saying to his flock, Look at the glory of Jesus. Jesus is at the center of the heavens and the earth. And since he's at the center of the heavens and the earth and all the heavens adore him, you know, he should be at the center of our lives as well. That's what this pastor is telling his flock. Now let me give you the disclaimer that in the days and weeks ahead, Hebrews is going to get into some weighty theology. But we need to remember the purpose of theology. The purpose of theology is to elevate Christ in our hearts and minds so that we would worship him with greater zeal and live for him with every ounce of strength that's in us. That's the purpose of theology. That's the purpose of doctrine, is that it would lead us to devotion. And so what this great pastor is doing today is he's saying, I want to teach you a doctrine of angelology. Now, that is a real word. Angelology. I want you to see how wonderful the angels are. And then I want to compare them to Jesus Christ. And you'll see that they do not even come close. Now, why do you choose angels? Well, because 
And you need to work through any sort of sentimental Hollywood established idea in your mind that they're just some cute, chubby-cheeked cherubim that fly around and love to make people fall in love. Basically like a sanctified Cupid. That's not what the angels are. In fact, angels in Scripture are the highest of all created beings. Uh, If you watch sports at all, you know that one of the debates that happens in every sport is who is the greatest of all time? And so in football, it's often how do they compare to Tom Brady? In basketball, the conversation is always how do they compare to Michael Jordan? If, if you want to say that somebody is the greatest of all time, you have to compare them to Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan is known as the greatest of all time. Well, the Jews understood the angels were the greatest of all created beings. And so God says here through this pastor, let me compare the angels with Jesus Christ. And what you're going to find is that Jesus is exponentially greater even than the angels. The Jews believed that the apocalypse was going to be ushered in by an army of angels that would deliver them from the Roman oppressors. And this author is saying, if you think that's good, you need to see how great Jesus is compared to that. What we're going to see in this text is that as great as the angels are, they bow themselves down and serve their lives in worship to Jesus Christ. And friends, if the angels do that, how much more should you and I do the same? As we work through this text, we're going to focus on a couple of things. First, we're going to look at the beauty of the angels. Second, we're going to look at how Christ is greater than the angels. That's what all of those repeated uh, Old Testament quotes were about, showing us how Christ is greater than the angels. And third, I'm going to ask you a question, and the question is, are you on the side of the angels? Are you on the side of the angels? But first, let's look at the beauty of the angels. And the reason we're going to do this, the reason the angels are worth our attention is if we can catch a glimpse of the beauty, the glory, the majesty of these angels, how wonderful they are, and then see that Christ is infinitely greater, it's going to cause us to worship him. It's going to cause us to follow on our faces alongside those angels and worship him with all that we have. Now, I think it's interesting that despite the decline in American religiosity over the last century or so, American pseudo-spirituality has quite an interest in angels. And so whether whether it's Clarence Oddbody in It's a Wonderful Life or Monica in the show Touched by an Angel, angels are a real area of interest for American people, even irreligious Americans. where Where would Hallmark cards be without chubby cheeked cherubs? You know, what most, most of what Hollywood and Hallmark teach us about angels is wrong. And we can't study the angels scientifically. We can't trust Hollywood sentimentalism. And so everything we know about angels has to come from Scripture. If we want to be consistent Christians, this is just a rule for all of life. If we want to be consistent uh, Christians, then we have to examine every inch of the creation through the lens of Scripture. So what does Scripture tell us about the angels? Well, Scripture uses three terms to talk about these heavenly beings. There's the basic word for angel in both Hebrew and Greek. It it means messenger. And then there's the word cherubim and the word seraphim. And it's possible that those are three different types. Angels and cherubim and seraphim are three different types of heavenly beings. 
But if, if in your own time with the Lord this afternoon, if you look at Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Revelation 4, I think it's, it's safe to conclude that they may be the three terms for describing those same dazzling celestial beings. In other words, there may be three different categories of, of heavenly beings, angels and cherubim and seraphim. There may just be one under different terms. We really don't know. But let's look at what the angels are. And, and the best way for me to start that is to say what they're not. Let me give you a couple things that angels are not, because we have to dispel the silly sentimental thoughts that have been ingrained in us by Hallmark and Hollywood. First, angels are not divine beings. They're spirits like God, but they are not God. They're created beings, and therefore, by nature, they are below God. You know, that's why, although the scriptures reference angels hundreds of times, we're told almost nothing about their origin, very little about their appearance, and almost nothing of their personalities. And God didn't leave out that information so that you and I could speculate about them and write books guessing what angels are like. He did that because the Bible isn't a book about angels, it's a book about God. It's a book about who God is, and angels are not God. We're not to pray to angels, we're not to worship angels because they're not divine. Second, angels are not human. You've been to funerals, and you've heard somebody say, God needed another angel. Friends, let me tell you, any sentence that starts with the words, God needed, is heresy. God has no needs. God does not need another angel, and humans don't become angels when we die. I know that is sentimental, but it's untrue. And here's the reason we should care about that, because that would be a downgrade. That would be a downgrade from who we will be as glorified beings in Christ. See, if you're a Christian, you are united to Christ. You are one with Christ. And that means when you die, you don't become an angel. You become one with Christ. And by the awesome grace of God, you will be above the angels. Scripture tells us that we as believers will even judge the angels. Do you realize that? Hierarchically, we will be above the angels. And so if somebody says to you, well, heaven needed another angel, say, why a demotion? I don't want to be demoted. God has raised us up to be seated with Jesus. The angels never received that privilege. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He's rebuking them because you've got believers suing each other. And he says to him, listen, you're going to judge the angels one day and you can't even figure out how to work out this lawsuit between yourselves? So angels are not human. Third, angels are not cute little chubby-cheeked dolls. I think that's what comes to mind, like, like, a, like a holy Pillsbury doughboy. And you might see an angel and walk up and touch his belly. You know, in Scripture, when people see angels, there's two reactions. One is to fear, and the other is to worship. Maybe you remember this. Twice in Revelation, John got in trouble. John gets that glorious vision of heaven, and he sees an angel, and it is so wondrous that that his gut reaction is to fall on his face and worship. And the angel rebukes him, saying, don't you dare worship me. I'm a servant like you are. Fourth, Angels are not all holy. You know, based on Revelation 12, I preached on that at Christmas. 
Christians hold that some of the angels fell in, in their pride, in their envy of the glory of God. They fell and were, were kicked out of heaven, that Satan led a rebellion of those fallen angels. These fallen angels despise and fully set themselves against the purpose of God. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how they turned from good to evil, but it tells us that they were cast out of heaven and they are what we know of as demons. But many, many more remained holy, and it's of those holy angels that this text is talking so I've said what they're not. Let's think about what they are. I'm going I'm to tell you, I'm giving you several lists in this sermon, so I'm going to make this one easy. This is a quick three-part list. Angels are workers, they're warriors, and they're worshipers. Okay, they're, they're workers who delight to do the will of God. And so Daniel 12, we see angels have charge, have some level of dominion uh, over God's people on earth. We see it in Luke that angels were delighted to be the first messengers proclaiming the birth of Christ. We see it in Matthew 28 that it was an angel who helped the women on the resurrection morning by rolling back the stone of the empty tomb. Angels are workers, but not all the duties of angels are so prominent. Some are completely unseen by the world, and yet... Angels do not care one whit for their own glory or reputation. They simply love to serve God. Ian Bounds said it this way. Listen to this quote. This is just wonderful. If two angels at the same time were to receive a commission from God, one of them was to go rule earth's grandest empire and the other was to go sweep the streets of its poorest village, the angels would not care one bit whether they get the job of ruler or street sweeper because the joy of the angels lies in serving God, ah, that we might be like them. And specifically, the type of work they do is evident at the end of, of chapter 1, verse 14, where the author says, they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now, who are those to inherit salvation? That's us. In Jesus Christ, we inherit salvation. And so what this is saying is that God has commissioned the angels to serve the church. John Calvin says, angels are the ministers and dispensers of the divine bounty for us. They watch out for our safety, they undertake our defense, they direct our path, and take heed that no evil befall us. You know, you and I would do well to realize that there is an entire unseen world that is yet very real, and that there are legions of angels devoted to protecting God's elect. We don't know how often the angels intervene to protect us, protect us, but we do know that it is their delight to serve the church of Jesus Christ. And we ought to be thankful for these spiritual allies, these co-workers, and even though we cannot see them, their work is real. So they're workers. Second, they're warriors. That's one of the reasons we need to get rid of these sentimental, silly ideas of what angels are. We can then understand that they're enforcers. They are a hierarchical army established to advance the purposes of the creator angels make up a mighty 
army dedicated to advancing God's cause. This is good news for the believer because if we are on God's side, then those angels are on our side. Martin Luther said, God has created all these creatures to be a military service, to fight for us against the devil. And he said this, and I thought this was wonderful. When we pray those words, thy will be done, we are unleashing in the power of God a vast host of angels to conquer in his name. So they're warriors. Third, they are worshipers. Every scene that we see in heaven, angels are busy about worship. We never hear them complain about the length of the service. We never hear them complain about the comfort of the pews. They love to proclaim the glory of Christ. That's what makes them the highest of all created beings, that they're worshipers. But we've already said it would be a sin to worship the angels. And the reason is, no matter how great the angels are, Christ is infinitely greater. This is our our second point. The highest created creatures are infinitely below the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what verses 4 through 14 are talking about, those seven Old Testament quotations. And I think what's happening here is this pastor is relying on the Old Testament because he, in his own, the limits of his own vocabulary, he can't figure out human language to explain the glory of Christ even compared to the angels. And so he, he just spits out a litany of Old Testament references. And what he does then is he, he gives us four areas of comparison here. I want to look at those. First, in verse 5, we see Christ's greater identity. The angels, they have this tremendous privilege of being God's servants and messengers, but Christ, Christ is the only one that was called God's son. So verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a citation from Psalm 2, verse 7. And then it goes on and it cites David's words in 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. He was talking about Solomon, but that that prophecy of David bursts the banks of its earthly usefulness to talk about God's fatherhood of the Lord Jesus, this eternal begottenness of Jesus Christ. God never said to the angels, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So he has a greater identity. And then we see Christ is greater in dignity. The angels, they're worshipers, but Christ is the object of their worship. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the the firstborn into the world, he says, let God's angels worship him. That's a reference back to Deuteronomy 32-43 that God has ordained that Christ be the object of the angel's worship. You remember that, by the way. Christ is born in Luke 2, and an angel comes to announce to the shepherds that Christ has come, and then it was as if the heavens were too small to contain the joy of the angels, and it bursts forth into the horizon as they sing, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men with whom he's well pleased. 
The heavens are exploding with joy because they've seen this amazing reality that the second person of the Trinity would take on flesh. And the angels worship. You know, the angels worship still today. We're told there is celebrating when even one sinner repents and comes to faith in Christ. Now, what are they celebrating? Certainly they're celebrating the reclamation of one of God's elect, but more than that, they're celebrating the triumphs of Jesus Christ. They love to worship him because he's greater in dignity than they are. And then third, he's greater in authority. The angels are created servants, but he's the creator Lord. Look at verse 7. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. How does he get to determine what their job description is? Because he created them. They serve at his pleasure. And their duties are great. But Christ is greater. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, the angels serve the Creator but he is the creator. Look at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. You know, this world as we know it will one day pass away. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth, but you know, Jesus will never change. And so the text goes on. You are the same and you, your years will have no end. So Christ is greater in authority. And then fourth, Christ has the greater victory. Christ has the greater victory. You know, the, army, the angels are an army commissioned to minister to the church. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They're ministers to God's people, but Christ He's the one who conquered. And in Him, we too are called more than conquerors. The angels are not conquerors, they're servants. But Christ is the conqueror. And so look at verse 13. This is talking about what the Father said to the Son when the Son ascended. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know, the angels alone couldn't restore the kingdom. The angels alone couldn't redeem the souls of men. Christ did that. And his angels are under, I mean, his enemies are under his feet. He's crushed the serpent's head. And these angels bow in worship before the footstool of Christ. Beloved, can't you see the scene that Jesus is infinitely greater than the greatest of all the created beings? They don't compare even though the angels are so beautiful, they don't deserve our worship. So let's get the point of all this. Let's digest what this dear pastor is saying. It's an argument from greater to lesser. If the angels, the greatest of all created beings, spend every moment of their day in the worship and work of Christ, how much more should you and I? If the angels see Jesus Christ as the center of the universe, as the center of the heavens and the earth, how much more should you and I?
See, in telling them, in telling his people that the angels are taking their place around the throne of God, worshiping him, he's saying to his people, won't you come too? Won't you come and lay down your lives in worship at the throne? Because Jesus Christ alone is infinitely worthy. God has sent his son into the world for sinful people in order to redeem them so that you and I might add our voices to that heavenly chorus. There's a saying um, sometimes people will use to speak of believers. We might say, if someone's a believer, we might say he's on the side of angels. It's a wise way to speak of it because it acknowledges there's only two sides. There's the side of the angels who love to serve and worship the ascended Lord Jesus. And then there's the side of the fallen angels who set themselves against God and his purposes. And every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth falls into one side or the other. Either you are on the side of the angels or you are opposed to them. And more importantly, you are opposed to their God. I don't know if you realize that. If you said, you know, I, I'm not against Jesus. I'm just not, I, I'm not a Christian. I'm not going to spend my life in worship and service to Christ. What you're saying is I have joined the side of the demons and I have set myself against Christ. There is no neutrality. You are one or the other. You're either on the side of the angels or you have chosen the side of evil. Let me ask you, church family, are you on the side of the angels? Angels have seen with clear eyes what you and I have seen through veiled eyes, that Christ is infinitely glorious and worthy, and you can't be indifferent towards him. You're either on the side of angels worshiping him and serving him and putting all of life into submission to him, or you are opposed to him. I'm going to take a cue from the author of Hebrews, and I'm going to tell you, beloved, because I do love you, I do not know that every man, woman, and child in this room is on the side of the angels. I, I do not know that, and ultimately it's not for me to know. But I know that many of us are good at assuming the posture of being on the side of the angels for an hour or so a week. But any hypocrite can do that. To be on the side of the angels means that you understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. You understand that your sin had separated you from God because of, of your guilt. And because God is an infinite God, your sin carries infinite guilt. And that infinite guilt could only be taken away by an infinite person. The Father who sent his only begotten Son for our rescue. And not only must we trust this Son, but as we do, the only logical response is to worship. If we have really understood who He is and what He came to do, then we will most certainly join on the side of the angels. Beloved, are you on the side of the angels? Devoting your life to the worship and work of Christ, pushing back against the darkness. I want you to know that the devil absolutely hates that idea. And for most of us, his goal 
is not that we would curse Christ and become Satan worshipers. He's far too smart for that. What he wants is to manufacture a counterfeit Christianity in which we might outwardly appear to be on the side of the angels, but never make Jesus the center of our lives. We learn to, to talk the talk, but there is no walk. That is Satan's desire that we would come up with, uh, that we would follow some imposter Christianity where it looks Christian and yet the throne of our hearts is occupied by the love of this world? Are you on the side of the angels? Or has counterfeit Christianity led you to believe, led you to believe that you're on his side when you really are not? You and I need a Copernican revolution, don't we? You know what that was? Uh, the shift in thinking from an earth-centered universe to a sun-centered universe. For too many of us, the center of our life is this world. Work and play and family. And that's what we live for. That's not Christian. To be a Christian is to say that all of life revolves around Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ alone is worthy of my life, not this world, not the engagement of my flesh, not leisure, not even the angels above deserve to be on the throne of my life. Jesus Christ alone deserves that seat. What we need is to realize that Jesus is above all else and that everything about our lives needs to revolve around him. That's what this text teaches us. How do we apply it? Just one application. You and I need to consciously state that Christ is above all because before too long, following Christ might cost us all. I saw a report yesterday that the church in America has decreased by over 25%. In the last two years because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now there's, there's some extenuating circumstances health-wise for some, but for the vast majority of those people, here's what they've said. Jesus just isn't worth it. He's not that valuable to me. It's not worth getting up early, not worth gathering with my church family and worship. You know, we've got brothers and sisters all over the face of the earth today who risk life and livelihood to gather with their church family. And what we're seeing in America is that the cost was too great. Even in the last two years. What's going to happen, beloved, when gathering in corporate worship costs us things like our jobs, our freedom, our reputation, Maybe our lives. Oh, pastor, you're just being extreme. Maybe I am. But I think there's a very good likelihood that I am not. And that we are on the cusp of Babylon. And I fear deeply that far more than 25% will abandon the church when they see the cost associated with following Christ in a post-Christian world. 
And so I want to say to you, beloved, before we take one more step closer to Babylon, is Jesus Christ worth it to you? Because if he is not, then you will be a statistic soon. If you cannot consciously say that I want to lay down my life for the worship and work of Christ, then in 10 years you will be a statistic. Oh, beloved, Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of all that it may cost you. But I'll I'll, I'll end with the words of Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That's what it is to look at Christ and say, Jesus is worth it all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess that it has been tempting for many of us and maybe a snare for many of us to settle for a cheap Christianity, a counterfeit Christianity manufactured by the devil where we may assume the posture of a worshiper the world, the flesh, and the devil remain on the throne of our lives. God, Hebrews is about shaking that will come one day. How this world will be shaken. And what will remain is that city that cannot be shaken. The city of Zion. Those who have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Father, Oh, I pray that we as a congregation would not be a statistic. That we would not fall away. We're going to see that next week as as we hear that warning not to drift away. Lord, let us not become a statistic. And we know that doesn't happen just by sheer resolution on our part. It happens when we can consciously say, Jesus Christ is greater than everything else in this world and in the heavens above. He is infinitely greater.